The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Galatians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. This is actually a text I love to teach on. If you don't have a Bible, do me a favor, stick a hand up nice and high. Uh, we got some gentlemen coming through that'll make sure that you get one. We do believe it's important that you be able to look along as we go through the scriptures so you know I'm not making any of this stuff up. But also, uh, if you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. Take that with you, read it, learn more and more about Jesus through it. And we just pray that would be a blessing to you. Um, to the rest of us, just turn in the Bibles you have to, to the book of Galatians chapter 6, or your apps, whatever it is you're using. But I'm going to open by reading something completely different by way of preface for today's teaching. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And now we, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Right now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I'm fully known. And so now faith, hope, and love all abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. God, may your spirit come upon us even right now as we open up your word, as we study your scriptures. Lord, may you prepare our heart for the word that you have for us today. May your word change us, make us what we are not, provide for us what we don't have. God, I pray that, that we would have open hearts to whatever you might say to us in this word, that we would resist the common temptation to lord over your text, but instead to allow you to be lord over our lives. May we approach these words humbly, and Lord, I pray in particular, Lord, as the, the person here talking, that, that by your grace, Lord, and by the gift of your spirit, you would speak even through me. You've spoken through donkeys before, God, and we ask you to do it again. So Lord, as we often pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Galatians chapter 6. The, the book of Galatians is a book about the gospel. Now, it's, it's actually a letter, we know this, written to a church that Paul had planted years previously, but in our common language and the way things have been compiled in the canon of Scripture, we refer to it now as a book. It's the book of Galatians, and it's a book that has a topic. It's a subject, and the book is about the gospel. The gospel is good news. 
And the reason the book of Galatians is good news, the good news of the gospel that comes to us, the reason it's such good news is because the gospel teaches us that in spite of all of our dysfunctions, or I should say all of our dysfunctions, our failures, our sins, our follies, our errors, all of these things can be traced back to one source, and that is mankind's broken and fractured relationship with God. We were designed to be in fellowship with God. We were created by him and for him, the scriptures say. We were created to walk in fellowship with him, in dependence with him, depending on his love, his guidance, his instruction, to follow him, to learn from him, to love him, and to enjoy him. But, but our sin has fractured that relationship. And so now all of us have a broken or not as it yet should be relationship with God. And whenever mankind has a broken relationship with God, it is inevitable that right behind that will be fractured and broken relationships with one another. That's how it works. Because here's what happens. When we were created for our identity, our purpose, our joy and fulfillment to be in God, and that relationship is fractured, then we inevitably become people who are searching for identity, fulfillment, and all of those things in other areas. We're constantly looking for that purpose of life, that meaning in life, that thing that, that fulfills us, that finishes us, that completes us. Thank you, Jerry Maguire. Those kinds of things. And so we look in all sorts of different areas. We look in jobs. I mean, my goodness, in our culture especially, your job is a massive part of your identity, is it not? I mean, you meet someone for the first time, what's one of the first two or three questions you ask is, what do you do? And so our job and the work that we do becomes our identity. Or we'll find identity in relationships, in people, in husbands or wives or children. But here's the truth of it. Those things may be fantastic. I mean, jobs are good things. Those are God-given graces to all of us. Children, family, husbands, wives, all good things. Amen? Amen? But they are not designed to bear the weight of us putting all of our desires, fulfillment, um, and identity in those things. They're not strong enough to carry that. And so there are people that, for example, will go into marriages thinking, that's the thing that I need to complete me, to make me happy, to fulfill my life. I have to have this, and now I'm finally getting it, and we pour everything into these wedding ceremonies, and, and they're great. It's a really good thing. But time after time after time, what people have found is that, man, it, it's, it's not there. They can't provide for me that thing that I've been looking for all along. And so whatever it is, boyfriends, spouses, whatever those things, as great as they may be, as amazing as they may be, they cannot bear the weight of your hopes, dreams, joy, fulfillment, and identity because they're broken too. And so when that happens, when those realizations come, that the joy I was looking for in life, that I thought I was going to get in this relationship isn't there, then our natural proclivity, because it's the way we've lived our whole lives, is to go look for it elsewhere. And so relationships fracture, marriages fracture, jobs end, discontentment sets in, you name it. And over and over and over, we as humans dip into well after well after well, looking for that one thing that fulfills. And that thing is Jesus Christ who said, he who drinks the water that I have will never thirst again. And so this is the reality of the human condition, that when our relationship with God is broken, it is just a matter of time before our relationship with those around us will be fractured and broken. But the good news of the gospel is this. 
that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sins he offered, but even, even more, the reality that he died for our sins to adopt us and to bring us into the family and to make us his children, <clears throat> that reality becomes our identity. That's why the scriptures in the New Testament, when you're reading the New Testament and you read over and over and over, and it'll say, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This is what it's talking about. When your fulfillment, your identity, when all of those things are placed in the God who has given you his perfect love, his perfect approval, and who loves you completely, when your identity is in him, you are suddenly completely freed up to be able to love and walk alongside other broken people in spite of differences and difficulties that come up. You're freed to love one another, to share with one another, because this is what you discover. And don't take this the wrong way, Heritage, but listen... I don't need you to make my life work. You understand what I mean by that? And, and you and your friends and those things, you can look at other people and say, I don't have to have your constant approval, love, happiness, whatever it is, to, to be able to succeed and to be able to find joy in life. My joy is not dependent on how our relationship is going. Because I'll tell you, man, I've spent tons of time in my life, I don't know about you guys, I think we all have, finding our identity in all sorts of things. And so, so career, Jeff, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Can I just tell you, if you've, never done, if you've ever done this before, and some of you in the crowd have been pastors before, you're going to nod with me. Being a pastor is a terrible thing to put your identity in, amen? It's a terrible thing to put your identity in. Because what ends up happening as a pastor is you have seasons where things are awesome and glorious and people love you and you have other seasons where you feel like everyone hates you and you're dealing with all sorts of problems. And just for a living, a lot of what you do is just get your hands dirty dealing with all sorts of messes that are going on all the time. And so what can happen is, over the last few weeks, man, I've had difficult meetings over interpersonal issues, over theological issues, hospital visit after hospital visit after hospital visit after hospital visit. It has been a rough couple of weeks. And so if I put all my identity in just being Pastor Jeff, it's a rough couple of weeks. And I've met people who have been in ministry and made that their identity and it crushed them because there are constant pressures and constant challenges and in the end they just can't handle it anymore and it sometimes ends really, really badly. But when you understand, when I understand, that my identity as a man is not that I'm Jeff the pastor or the dad or the husband or the fly fisherman or the Tar Heel fan or whatever it is you want to call it. That my identity is that I am in Christ Jesus. I am the son. I am a son of the living father. I am redeemed by Jesus and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That frees me up to continue to serve others even when I don't feel like they like anything that I'm doing serving them in that moment because I'm not doing it so that I receive something back from them. I'm doing it as an act of worship to God. And so in those hard seasons, I can continue to be graceful to other people even when my flesh wouldn't want to because I continue to receive grace from my father. And the same would be true for any of you in your marriages, in your relationships, in your work, in anything that you do. When you put your identity in something other than God, you are imprisoning yourself and setting yourself up for failure. But when you understand the reality of the gospel, who you are, who your identity really is, you are freed up, even in spite of sins others might commit against you, to still love them because your identity doesn't depend on what they say or do to you. Your identity is on the fact that Jesus loves you. Are you guys tracking with me on this? 
couple of nods, amen? All right, now, when a community of people are all together and get this same idea, something glorious happens. When a community of people can no longer put their identity in other things, can put their identity in Christ and are then freed up to walk in grace amongst one another, it is an amazing thing that happens. And can I just tell you straight up, it's rare. It's rare, even in our day and age. And this is what the book of Galatians is now going into. He's already established the reality of the gospel that is based on one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And he's urging us to put all of our identity and fulfillment and energy into that reality. You are a child of God. You are adopted into God's family. And then out of that, allow that to determine how all of your other relationships everywhere else go. If if you've heard it, maybe put this way. Once the vertical is in line, the horizontal is going to work out great. Once your relationship with God is in line, everything out here, it it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy. Don't misunderstand me to think that if Heritage gets this gospel thing down, we're just going to bounce around on clouds and hug each other 24-7. It doesn't work that way, as you're going to see in this text. But, But what happens is, is it frees you so that the reactions and the sins or the whatever of other people don't crush you. And you're able to continue in faithful service and love to one another. Does that make sense? So this is what Paul's going to be talking about now in this last chapter of the book of Galatians. It's also what we're going to be dealing with a lot as we move into the book of Ephesians. Our our theme for the book of Ephesians is going to be become who you are. Because it teaches us about the identity of the Christian in Christ and about what that looks like as you become that thing that God is turning you or has created in you. And so this is what we're going to be looking at today. So looking at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression. This is what we're going to be dealing with today, mostly. The idea of when someone else that you know and are in fellowship with, and this is all within the context of the church that this passage will be talking about. It's not people out there, it's people in here. Everybody say in here. In here, okay? So it's within a fellowship, a community of faith, when you become aware of someone is in sin. This is what we're talking about today. Popular topic, right? So this is what we're going to be talking about. Now, it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, and let me clarify, that doesn't mean, aha, gotcha. Okay, this doesn't mean caught red-handed, busted. That is not what this passage is in any way talking about. This is not spiritual detectives running around busting someone else in sin. That's not the word that's there. Now, unfortunately, there are many historically throughout Christianity that have believed this. And so you get watchdog groups. There's websites now that are just dedicated to watching churches and just waiting for them to step out of line so that they can blog about it and and all these things. Um, Watchdog ministries, they'll call them sometimes. And and there are groups, I mean, I I picked on them a few weeks ago and you say, why are you picking on that church? Because I don't think they qualify as a church and because you gotta pick on someone and they deserve it. Westboro Baptist Church is the church that is always in the news when it comes to things like, you know, the gay rights issue and then they go to Westboro Baptist Church as if that's the church that represents the heart and the beliefs of the Christian community in general. I should tell you, in case you don't know this, Westboro Baptist Church is not affiliated with anyone. 
There is no known Baptist denomination anywhere that would accept them into their group. I mean, at least none have. So when it says Westboro Baptist Church, we should always write that in a lowercase b, probably. Not really a church. But their mission seems to be, hey, a soldier died, his funeral's coming back, and you know what? Our military now allows gay people in it. Let's go picket the funeral. And so they'll go to places and constantly pointing their fingers and condemning. And literally, I told you the guys this before, if you want to go to the website for Westboro Baptist Church, like if you want to go to Heritage's website, it's heritagefellowship.net. You should go. The guys put a lot of time into that. Heritagefellowship.net. Free plug, Carmine. Anyway, but if you want to go to Westboro Baptist Church's website, it's www.godhatesfags.com. That's their website address. Real Jesus-like, you know? So, so there are people, there was a guy that used to come on campus when I was at North Carolina State University, Reverend Birdsong, and he would stand up at lunch in the brickyard, the big common area where everybody was, and he would just point his finger at everyone that would come around and just, you, your skirt's too short, you slut. It was horrible, the stuff that would happen. But there is a segment of people that really believe that it is part of the Christian responsibility to expose sin in the world. And they'll point to passages like this and also Jesus' teachings where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And so it is our job when the light is on, it exposes the sin, it exposes the flaws, and this is part of God's program. Not true. Not true. Not biblical even slightly. In fact, the text that is pointed to in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, you let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Now, there's watchdog ministries that believe we have these spiritual spotlights, and our responsibility is like prison guards just walking around, you know, shining that light around, trying to find somebody to bust. And that's what we do. I'm the light of the world. I'm a city set on a hill. You can't hide from me. And all these kind of things. But that's not what the text says. It's not spiritual spotlights. What it says is, if anything, the light is on ourselves so that as we are serving and loving others, the world sees the gospel working through us and then gives glory to God. It's not about going out and trying to bust people. So when Paul says this in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught, it's not caught like, I caught you. What it means is ensnared, trapped, entangled. It, it, it doesn't mean you busted someone. It means you see your brother is drowning in sin. This is a heavy and serious thing here. It's not, aha, it's, oh, no. This is what we're talking about. And so this passage here is talking about what should the reaction to the church who understands its identity in Christ be when a brother is caught, ensnared, drowning in sin. And, and unfortunately in the church, too often either the reaction is way too harsh over here like that other church I mentioned, or it's we don't do anything at all. This is America, it's liberty, and we just let people, you do your thing, I'll do my thing and we'll be okay. And both are wrong, sin sinful, in fact. I, I was at Diamond Lake just a couple of years ago. I think I've told you guys this story once before, but I was at Diamond Lake a couple of years ago right after ice off. I mean, there was still ice on parts of the lake. There was still snow on the shores, freezing cold. 
And me and a friend were there fishing, and we were leaving. And as I was coming out of the marina with some, some I don't know, sodas or whatever we bought for the ride home, I was standing there, and there were some other guys standing around, guys that work at the marina. A, a park ranger was there, people standing there, and you could hear this little faint voice going, help, help. You could hear it off in the distance. And everybody's just kind of standing around. Like, and I, I stopped there, and I had this stuff, and I'm like, do you guys hear that? And literally, the ranger guy, the, the guy whose job it is, right, like he's there and he's like, sounds like somebody's calling for help. <laughs> That's why he makes the big bucks right there. And, and, but everyone's just standing there. They're just standing there. And so literally, drop all the groceries, start running through the snow, heading towards the mooring area where everybody parks their boats. You could tell it was over there somewhere. And I'm just going, keep yelling. I, can't, I couldn't see anything. Get out on the dock, run out this way, and then turn to the end of the dock. And all you could see was this one frail little bitty hand just hanging on the edge of the dock, holding onto the boat cleat. Blue, just purple hand. Got to the side, and it was, I don't remember how old she was. I want to say she was like 78-year-old woman. And her and her husband docked the boat, and he went to go park the truck, and she had gone to step on the boat. And if you've ever stepped one foot on the dock and one foot on the edge of the boat, you know what happens, right? It starts to slide away, and she slipped and went right down into the water, and it was freezing cold water. And those eyes, I'll never forget that look on her face, just grabbing her, and the guys catching up, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum showed up finally, and they, <laughs> they helped pull her up out of the thing, and, you know, it was okay. So, so here's the, this is the idea, though. It's not that you have busted someone in sin, but it's that you see your brothers going down. So what's your reaction gonna be? Are we gonna stand back, do nothing? Or do we just go, just swim? <laughs> How do we handle this? Well, let's take a look and see what he says. Verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Let's pause again. You guys are already nervous. He's not making it through a sentence yet. Listen, this is important. We're gonna spend time on this one and blow through the rest, so hang with me. You who are spiritual should restore him. In other words, when a brother is drowning in sin, it is the responsibility of the person who is spiritual to restore him. So who is the person who's spiritual? I mean, our, our inclination could be, well, it's the pastors, it's the elders, you know, the spiritual leaders, it's those guys. But that doesn't fly with anything Paul's been saying through the book of Galatians. In fact, this is coming right on the heels, in fact, of the text on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Where he says, if you are walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5, he says, then this fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And to those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual. You see the flow? Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but when the scriptures are written, the actual original text here, they don't have a number six for chapter six or a one for verse one. Those don't exist. In fact, these letters are one continual block of writing. And so this is one thought. So here's a person who's walking by the Spirit, who's exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, and then he says to that person, look, don't be provoking, don't be envying, don't spread division, but look, brothers, when you see someone is drowning in sin, then you who are spiritual, restore them. 
So the person who's spiritual is not some spiritual leader, some super Christian on some made up hierarchy. It's, hey, if you are walking by the spirit and you in your life are exhibiting the fruits of the spirit, then it is your God-given responsibility to go and restore that brother who has fallen in sin. It's your job. Not to go to the elders and have them. This is you. So this is Christian community we're talking about here. And the purpose of you going to that person who is overtaken in sin and engaging them in that sin is for restoration. Everybody say that with me. Restoration. This is so important. We are not detectives. The goal of finding someone in sin is not that we might bust them so that we might humiliate them, so that we might bring their attention and expose them to the rest of the church or the elders or tell our buddies and friends, do you know what so-and-so was doing? That is not the goal. The only acceptable purpose for us to engage people in the family of faith with regards to their sin is for the purpose of what? Restoration. This is huge. Listen to what 1 Peter 4, 8 says. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So the Christian community is not a police state where we're constantly watching out over one another so that we can bust somebody ready to take them down any chance we get. We, should, we aren't people that we should be like, man, I, I've got my radar up and I'm ready to bust somebody and when I do, I'm taking them to the elders and I'm gonna keep this church pure. It's not what he's saying at all. Not what he's saying at all. And in fact, in Galatians 5, what was it that Paul said our only acceptable motivation for anything that we do as Christians is to be? Faith and what? Love. Love. Not arrogance, not pride, not some pseudo-spirituality, not our position, not authority, but love. So, so consider those two together. You who are spiritual, restore a brother that's overtaken in sin, and love covers a multitude of sin. What does that mean for us? What does that look like? It means that if I've got a good friend of mine, a brother that I'm walking with, and he's just having a bad day or a bad week, and he's wrestling through some stuff, and we're having coffee, and he's talking about the things that are going on or even venting, and maybe he says something he shouldn't say, exhibits some attitude that he shouldn't say, what am I going to do in that moment? I'm not gonna slap a siren on top of my forehead and start going busted. I'm probably gonna cut the guy some slack. Love covers a multitude of sin. I'm gonna go, you know what? The dude's having a rough week and I just wanna be here for him. I wanna love him. I wanna share with him. And I'm gonna, if he needs somebody to vent to, then let it be me. I'll take it for him. But if I start to see some sort of pervasive pattern that is ensnaring him and I see that, that my boy is drowning, that my boy's in trouble, that my boy is going down, well, well then I, I'm required by scripture, if I am one who is spiritual, in other words, one who is desiring to walk by the spirit with God, is my responsibility to lovingly engage him for the goal of restoration, not to shame him, not to let him see how spiritual I am, not to make myself feel good about my own spirituality because I'm not wrestling with what he is, but because I love him and I want to see him restored. This is the only reason that we are engaging one another in these things, the goal of restoration. So how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us, the text goes on, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, 
keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So we're to, be, we're to do it two things he gives us, gently and with humility. We restore our brothers gently and with humility. So gently, let's consider this. When you know that your friend has been taken by a sin, he's been ensnared in sin, you go to him gently. You're not flying off the handle. You're not enraged. You're not, what are you doing? Or you jerk or any of that kind of stuff. You're not just popping off a mean Facebook comment or email. You're going to him. Physically, go to your brother. Young people on Facebook and stuff, listen to me. Go to your brother. And talk to them in person and lovingly, but gently. Not harsh. Not because I'm wanting to rough this guy up and make him feel bad about what's going on. Remember, he's a brother that's drowning. And so you're going to them gently. Now, with that being said, there are times where firm action does have to be taken, does it not? I'll give you an example. Um, I was fishing just recently uh, up at the Holy Water, up above the Rogue River, and I had my dog with me, Asher, my puppy. And it, we're going to the river. It was one of the first times I'd even taken him up into that area. And as we're walking along the river, I saw the first of the year for me at that point. I saw my first snake of the year. And you guys know how it works, right? When you see a snake, they're all rattlesnakes at first, right? You know what I mean? Like every snake you see for the first two or three seconds is a rattlesnake, Amen. And so this one, it ends up being a, a gopher snake, so I didn't, I didn't know at first. And man, those things, they're, they're both brown, I guess. And so you just don't know. And I've seen rattlesnakes there before, and my puppy's walking in front of me, right? So what did I do? Oh, come here, bud. Come here, bud. No, I th- that's a rattlesnake he might be stepping on. And so I grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and yanked him, and he, the whole thing, right? So just like if you see your kid going out into the street and there's a car coming and they're going to get hit and you know it, your reaction is harsh and firm and you've got to deal with it, right? But the goal is what? To save them. And so with the dog, I snatched it up, but then I, oh, I love my dog. Any dog people in here, amen? I love my dog. So I'm snatching it up because I don't want to see him get hurt, but at the same time, I love that dog. Or, or my child if a car's coming. And so sometimes you have to act decisively because the danger is severe, but, but the goal is always love. So you're not going just to beat him up and walk away. You're going to deal with it to try to save your drowning friend, but quickly to throw an arm around them in love. Amen? So you go to them gently. If you're saying harsh things and you find in your spirit that you're actually enjoying saying them, that might be a problem. We go to them gently. And the second thing is this, we go to them humbly. We go to them humbly. We, and and specifically it defines it, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So I would say this, you should not go to anyone to confront them over their sin until you first have taken an opportunity to consider your own heart and your own sin And you probably shouldn't go to them until you get to that place where you're going, but by the grace of God, there go I. That's what I believe this text says. That until you get to a place that you understand your own weaknesses and your own sinful tendencies and that you understand that we are all fallen and broken, I don't think you'll ever have the amount of gentleness, love, and humility needed to be able to restore your brother in the way that the scriptures say. 
And this is just plain gospel application throughout the scriptures that we consider ourselves first. We apply the gospel to ourselves first before we go anywhere. It's a protection against pride. It's protection against our own sin. It's a guard over our own heart. And it is a mark of someone who understands the fact that whatever successes they're having in any other area of life, they owe only to one thing, and that is the grace of God. So they have nothing to be boastful about. And so someone that is going to someone else, you're not going there to shame them. You're going, you see your brother in a ditch, and until you can picture yourself in the same ditch, don't go. You pray for them, and you pray for yourself, and you say, God, give me a heart of restoration for my brother in need. And then you go to your friend, and you're not just trying to shame them. You're not trying to beat them up. You're not trying to yell at them. You're reaching a hand down, and you're saying, come on, brother, let's get out of here. That is Christian restoration. And so the follower of Jesus, when they see someone who is ensnared in a sin, they are to first analyze your own heart. Go to them in humility and gently for the purpose of restoration. This is the idea of what Christian community should look like within the church. You don't see it a lot. This is what it should look like. Now let's consider something for a second. What if you're the one being engaged? What if you're on the receiving end of the correction that's coming your way? How do you handle that? How do you navigate that? Well, let me give you just a couple of things that I've seen happen or I have done myself, and maybe you can learn from my own experiences in this, but just a couple of things that I would urge you as gospel-believing, walking-in-the-spirit people not to do. When a brother confronts you, with an accusation or a sin or something that's going on. Number one, resist the temptation to instantly leave and just find people that agree with you. Resist that temptation. It'll be there. When someone comes to you and says, man, Jeff, I've seen how you've been treating your wife. Man, you've been talking harsh to her. You've been mean to her. And I just, dude, that's been troubling me. And so I'm coming here to talk to you about it. Well, our tendency can, can want to be to go over to someone else and go, man, Bill, Steve came to me over here and he just shoot, he said I'm harsh with my wife. Can you believe that? And see, here's why this is a problem. Honest truth, not meaning to offend, most people are cowards in this area. And so you come to your buddy, man, he just said that I'm mean to my wife. Can you believe that? No. No. I, you know what? He's probably just jealous of your relationship with your wife. That's probably what it is. And so he's just making himself feel better or whatever the case may be, but this is what can happen. You can build a coalition of people that will protect the action that you're in, the thought process that you have. It, that accusation might be completely true and you'll never even have an opportunity to consider it because you just outvoted him. And, and so you've found enough people to justify who you are and you've cut short any opportunity that God might be sending your way that will cause you to grow. So resist the urge to instantly just run and find people who agree with you. And actually, that's just a good life rule, right? That's just a good life rule. Number two is this one. Resist the temptation to look for faults in the accuser. You've seen this reaction or you've done it before. Who are you to tell me? You're gonna tell me that I'm in sin with this while you're dealing with that? Who are you to tell me? And resist that urge. And here's why. No one's perfect. If you want to dig deep enough to find a fault that gives you reason to discredit the accusation that's coming your way, you'll find it. You'll find it. 
but you'll cheat yourself. Because if the accusation coming your way is true, then you've just cheated yourself as an opportunity to grow just by basically being religion, doing the same thing that you feel you've done, hurtfully been done to you and pointing your finger right back at the other person. Don't, don't do that. And, and listen, even if, hear me guys, even if they don't come to you in humility and gentleness when they approach you about your sin. And I said this during the prayer, and this is, this is just gospel truth. This is, this is biblical here. God has in scripture spoken through, I'll say donkeys. You know what I'm saying when I say that, right? G-rated version. And it's, it's amazing how many times it's, it's almost as if sometimes God will use people that you just flat don't like to come and approach you about things and sins that are going on in your own life. And our proclivity can be to say, who is that guy to tell me when in reality that, that, might, that person might have been sent by God for that very purpose because God's trying to get through to you and erode some, some layers of pride or of sin. And so just resist that temptation to try to discredit anything that comes your way simply by pointing a finger at someone else and saying that they're wrong too. They may very well, they are. I mean, everyone has fallen, everyone is in sin, but you owe it to your own soul to consider the things that come your way. Amen? Uh, Number three, resist the temptation to just end the relationship. And oh, I see this happen so much. I see this happen so much. There are blessings and curses to being in the country that we live in and having the blessing of having churches all over the place. The blessings are, man, there are gospel teaching churches, Jesus worshiping churches, everywhere. And that's a blessing. Amen. But the thing that we miss out on that people, for example, like the Galatians didn't have that when you were in Galatia, you went to the church. You know what I mean? You didn't go to first Baptist, second Baptist, third Baptist. You went to the church. And when there's only one option, you're sort of forced to just roll with it. Right? You ever lived in a really small town that only has like one restaurant? You don't have many other choices. Or if you live in a small town that has one red light, there's usually not a whole lot of roads going around them. You just got to work through it, right? Well, see, there's blessing in that. That in a community of believers, when friction comes, even if you believe that the accusation that's come your way isn't true and there's some things to work through, there is such benefit and growth to sitting down with your brother in gentleness and in meekness, not in hostility and how dare you, but to be able to sit and even open the scriptures and reason together and work through things in the community of faith. Separating should never be our first option. And all too often it is. Separating within the family of Christ should be a last resort. And the reason is, is because the church is designed to model the reality of the gospel where Jesus says, I will never leave you. No matter how you've treated me, no matter how you've rebelled against me, no matter how you've sinned against me, because of the gospel and my work on your behalf, I'm here and my love for you never changes. And that's how God wants our relationships now to work, flowing from that reality in scripture. So I'm begging you, church, resist the temptation to sever relationships over those sorts of things. Perhaps God is bringing someone to you because they want both of you to grow as you work through those sorts of things. But when we just sever relationships, we're cheated out of growth on both ends. You guys with me on that? Is this making sense? Amen? The goal in the end 
is that you're part of a community whose identity is placed in Christ that can lovingly serve and walk with one another, regardless of what happens, knowing everyone's going to have bad days, everyone's going to fall in sin, but we're committed to one another because we're committed to Jesus, and we can show grace to one another, knowing full well we're going to need that grace ourselves probably the same day. That's what gospel community should look like. And all too often, especially in our day and age, people will avoid even getting involved in community in the first place because they want to avoid stuff like that. But man, it's a beautiful thing. Some of the stories we hear from huddle groups and things where community is together and people are walking through difficult things in life together is glorious, glorious. So that's how you restore, but there's, there's something else to it and then we're gonna have to cut it short and do the next section probably next week. But, but look, So he says, keep an eye on yourself lest you be tempted. This is how you approach them. But verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I used to think of those two things as two totally separate things. Hey, correct your brothers in in meekness and in humility. And then point number two, bear one another's burdens. But when I look at the flow of the text and even the verses that come afterwards, I think it's all part of the same idea. The idea is when a brother has fallen in sin and you see that they're drowning, you're coming to them gently in humility and in love to say, man, come on, buddy, let's get out of here. And then you're really right, you're ready right then to throw an arm around them and saying, now I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to bear some burden with you. I'm going to walk with you in this issue. Because even the word burden there, it literally means something that is too big for this particular person to handle on their own. And this is a broad topic here. I mean, it could be anything. And it can, it can be tough because sometimes that's one conversation and the thing's dealt with and you get to move on. Sometimes it's a burden that can last day after day after day after year after year, whether it's maybe things like addictions And sometimes you can feel like you're going to someone and having the same conversation over and over and over and over. So people go, bear one another's burdens. What burdens? Burdens that burden. Right? Just burdens. It's intentionally vague. But the idea is is that if you're not willing to walk with a brother to restoration, then you can't go and correct them in the first place because the goal in the very beginning is what? Restoration. And so you're willing to throw an arm around somebody. That means that critiquing someone, and this is like those watchdog groups I've told you about that have blogs, and they see some church do something they find inappropriate, and so they'll write a blog article about it. I think that's sinful, can I just say? I really do. Because I think the model for this is to come alongside them and and be willing to say, now I'm going to walk through this with you. And so if you're only willing to confront your brother by email, you're missing the point. The goal is love over all of those things. And you can write an email, Corinthians might say, that has the tongue of angels, that is theologically astute and nails it. But if you don't have love for the person you're talking to and you aren't willing to do the hard work of love that walks with them through difficulties, then you're missing the point here of the text. And so brothers that are overcome with, let's say, pornography, or some icky sin, are you willing to roll your sleeves up to stand with them? What about addictions? Knowing full well they may fail, or maybe they already have over and over and over and over. How many times are you willing to stick it out? Love never fails, the scriptures say. So how many times are you willing to have that conversation or to forgive them? 70 times seven, over and over and over? Guys, this is what gospel community is designed to look like. 
And the world needs this because it doesn't see this at all. I mean, now we can just end a friendship with a click of a button on a computer screen. And the design of the church is that it would be radically different from everything else that's going on out there so that when, when the world sees what's going on in here, they're like, man, I've never seen love like that. Where does that love come from? Well, interesting. What did Jesus say? Let your light shine on yourself so that others might see your good works and glorify God in heaven. That's where you say, man, I'm loving him because God loves me. And I'll keep walking with that brother through drug addiction because God loved me and keeps walking with me through my sins. Mine are just different. That's what it looks like. But the reason we don't see it is just pride, frankly. Because isn't it interesting that the very next verse says, verse three, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In the flow of this amazing, Paul can write, amen? It's almost when you follow the whole flow through here, he's, he's hammering legalism and he's hammering these things going on. And it's almost he's saying, now if you live this way, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be problems. And especially you with your legalistic tendencies are going to have issues with the people in your church. So Galatia, listen, restore them humbly and watch out for your pride. It will end you as a community. And God is good. And so let me just encourage you with this. Oh, I hate leaving this off, but we got to. Let me encourage you with this. What Christian community that has its identity centered in the gospel and understands the reality of God's love for us should look like is this. That we're walking in the spirit. The fruit of the spirit has been exemplified. We're walking in peace and love and joy. But we also understand that we're not perfect yet. The gospel guarantees that we're going to blow it. So sooner or later, someone's going to do something that's not peace, love, joy, gentleness, humility, right? So what do we do when those things come up? Well, we continue in the fruit of the spirit as we address the sins. And we come in in gentleness, in humility, knowing that we fail as well. We tell that brother, man, come on, let's get out of this ditch. And I'm going to walk with you in this, however long it takes, by the grace of God. And I'll fail you too, but we'll repent together, and we're going to continue to love one another in this. And every once in a while, my pride's going to well up, but by the grace of God, I want to grow. And I want you to grow too. And this is what the church is for. We're not just a social club that gets together on Sunday mornings and sings songs. The church exists that we might grow. And so as the guys come up, they're going to close us in song. Let me ask you, is the Lord growing you? Are there, maybe are there people that you've ended relationships with that you shouldn't have? Are there people that have come to you over sins in your life and it got that pride all flared up and you react maybe negatively? Is there a brother or sister that is overcome by sin that you've just been afraid to deal with? Are you even walking in the fruit of the Spirit to begin with? Is there love, joy, peace, long-suffering evident in your own life? Let me assure you, God wants to lead us to something better. That's just the reality of it. Whatever we're walking in right now, God desires better for us. So may we, by his grace, stay humble enough to understand where we need to grow and be courageous enough to come alongside our brothers that are struggling as well in grace and humility. And why do we do this? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? That's what Christ did for us. Jesus came and fulfilled his work here perfectly and carried our burden for us. But he didn't come to shame. He came to save and to restore. 
And so think of the woman at the well. He pointed out sin to her, but he did it gently. He did it lovingly, but for the purpose of restoration. And whether you realize it or not, listen, he did it for you too. He came to you and convicted you of sin in your own heart, not to shame you, not to condemn you, but to save you. And you are now a son of God if you have put your faith in him. And the word tells us in Corinthians that we who are believers in Jesus now have the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We're on his team now. We're on his program now. And we walk in the same vein following the example of Jesus Christ himself. So heritage, let's be known for this. We cannot, we cannot be known for perfection here. We can't. The last thing in the world I would want people outside the walls of this church is to think heritage, that's where all those goody, goody, perfect people go. It's a lie. Amen? But we can be known for grace and mercy and love. Still standing on truth because we'll go to brothers that are in sin. I'm not talking about becoming jellyfish and letting anything go but doing it the right way to restore and to love for our own soul's sake as well. Amen? Will you guys stand and let's just take opportunity to sing one last song and let's let the Lord's word just, let it simmer in our hearts and go to the Lord and say, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. Are there areas where I have failed in this area? Have I sinned against a brother? Have I blown it in different areas? And let's ask that God by his grace would show us and grow us. Jesus' name.